We are in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. So, we have been going through the first five chapters of Acts, and we're getting ready to finish that up. We'll finish it in November. But um, we've seen uh, Jesus ascend into heaven. We've seen the church do some incredible things. And what we have here is we have um, Peter and, and John had just, uh, had just been used to heal a man who was lame from birth. And so the, a crowd surrounds them and they preach a sermon. And the scripture says um, that the authorities were uh, very annoyed, I think is, is the exact words that it says. Uh, anyway, they're very annoyed. The, the authorities are not happy about what's happening because Peter and John, one, are not authorized to preach or teach in the temple at all uh, because they're essentially nobodies. And two, they are preaching Jesus Christ. And remember, the Sanhedrin, the people in power during this day, are the very people who conspired to have Jesus Christ killed. Okay, so Peter and John, again, are essentially nobodies through their eyes, and here they are preaching Jesus Christ, preaching salvation through Jesus Christ. This puts them on the radar of some very powerful and very hateful men. And so they get arrested, and they, get, they go through a trial, and essentially Peter and John, who used to who both were cowards, right? the night that Jesus was arrested, they flee and... and uh, Peter denies Jesus, and after Pentecost, they're, they're transformed, and essentially they say to the Sanhedrin, you can do what you want with us, but we can only preach what we know, and what we know is Jesus Christ. And so the Sanhedrin, they're kind of, they, they don't know what to do because they cannot allow Peter and John to continue preaching Jesus if they want to stay in power, but also they cannot deny the miracle that has been performed in the name of Jesus. And so they threaten them, and they release them. And that's where we pick up today. Their prayer that we're going to read results in God's affirmation and another filling of the Spirit. As we read this, remember that this prayer is given and their approach is given before they are filled with the Spirit. They're filled with the Spirit again later. Okay, so let's read Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. To, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
and when they had prayed, the place in which they were and the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So Let's first look at, at the context. What's, what's happening here? What's causing this? What drives them to it? The first thing is uh, we have to understand that the threats given by the Sanhedrin in verse 21 were serious threats, okay? Verse 21 uh, says, and when they had further threatened them, this is the Sanhedrin threatening Peter and John, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. These threats that they give, although it's kind of just mentioned in passing in the Scripture, these are real threats, okay? These are the people who gathered together to have Jesus Christ crucified, and they meant what they were saying. At this moment and in this context, they couldn't really persecute or punish the apostles, but they meant what they said when they, when they were saying, stop or there's consequences. We don't know what the threats are, but essentially it's stop or we're going to kill you. Stop or we will stone you. Stop or we will have you crucified. Okay, these are real threats from people who really mean it, who have already carried out these same threats against our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, these are real threats. They're serious. And so, um, this group, the, the members of the Sanhedrin, they typically hated each other. Remember, they're kind of, like, um, kind of like mixed between our Congress and Supreme Court. So imagine Democrats and Republicans getting together for a common cause. Never happens, right? It is the same concept here. They only got together in extreme circumstances. And those extreme circumstances were when someone was a threat to their power or their wealth. And they, they perceived that in Jesus Christ, and that's why they united to have him crucified. They knew, the apostles here in the church that's praying, they know that there's danger coming their way. Based on the response of the apostles in the early church, they're concerned not for personal safety, but for the sake of the church and the mission that Jesus gave. The church, the early church, and specifically the apostles, were concerned about the mission that Jesus gave, the Great Commission. You can find it in Acts 1.8. You can find it in Matthew 28. It's in all four Gospels and the book of Acts. It's the only command of Jesus that's, that is in all the Gospels and the book of Acts, which is essentially make disciples. Start here, start local, and move out. Reach the world. Make disciples. That's the command that they're concerned about. They're concerned about the church, and they're concerned about the mission. And so they pray for boldness, not for safety. They want to share Jesus in spite of what's going to happen. And they don't want persecution to become a distraction to what Jesus told them to do. This is an incredible way of thinking. Or when you think about what they really are facing and how they just watch Jesus Christ being beaten and hung on a cross, the same men who organized that are now threatening the church, and the church is saying, God, give me boldness. God, don't, don't let me worry about this persecution. Don't let me worry about this. Allow me to focus on your mission. That's essentially what they're saying here. It's incredible. Okay, so just, just think about this line of thought. And, 
Americans, we, we, get, we get bent out of shape when we perceive any kind of opposition or religious liberty infringements, okay? So much so that it often sidetracks us to defend our liberties rather than the gospel, okay? So hear, hear me clearly. I'm not saying religious liberty isn't important or that we should sit idly by while those liberties are taken away. That is not what I'm saying. But it should never be done the cost of the gospel. Never should we choose liberty over being a witness for Jesus. Not ever. There is not a single circumstance when we should fight for our own liberties and our own freedoms over the, the, over the, the mission that Jesus Christ left us. The early church did not have religious liberty at all, not in any way. They had no religious liberty, but nonetheless, they declared the gospel with passion, zeal, focus, and boldness, and then they turn around and ask for even more because they're already passionate, they're already bold, they're already standing in the streets where there is no religious freedom and declaring Jesus and preaching Jesus, and so they're already bold, and here they are asking for more. God, make me bold. Make me courageous. This is incredible. We have, a, we have so much to learn just from their response to the, to the threat. So we, we talked about the context a little bit. We talked about the threat and, and how they respond. But let's talk about the prayer specifically. First of all, um, we're going to look at it as a whole. All right? We're not going to tear it up chunk by chunk, but we're going to look at it as a whole. So... As, as we're looking at the prayer, the first thing we have to notice is that it comes out of a witness for Jesus. It's born out of a witness. Peter and John just returned from the first attack on the church. Okay, that's, that's what happened there. They're arrested for preaching Jesus and threatened, and so they return, and they have an urgent prayer request. Okay, and today, first of all, um, Peter and John don't come to the entire church. Remember, uh, just from last chapter, or from last week, I think it was, the church is 5,000 men, right? So it's, it's probably bigger than 5,000. You throw in women and children, but it's at least 5,000 men. So the, the church is huge at this point. And there is no place in all of Israel where the entire church can gather in one place. So what you have is Peter and John coming together, ready, with their community group. That, that's what they're doing. They're coming together with their small group of people who they can trust and who they can pray and who they are held accountable by and who they are constantly praying with and ministering with. They go to their community group for this prayer. This might have been the original 120 people who are listed in, at the beginning of Acts. Um, it doesn't tell us that. Some people think that they came, uh, just the disciples together. The scripture doesn't say that, and it probably would if, they were, if it was only the disciples meeting. This is essentially just a community group. This is the people that Peter and John pray and minister with, the people that they trust, the people that they can come to. This is Peter and John's community group, okay? So, today, when we have an urgent prayer request... Christians come to God with those requests, and, it, and this is me included, I'm not pointing the finger, but this request ends up being basically a chore list or a to-do list rather than an urgency to see people come to Christ. We give God our to-do list, 
and then that's it. We don't have, we, we're, not, we're not praying about any specific person we want to see come to Christ. We don't pray for boldness. We don't ask God uh, so that we can be ready for what he has already predestined to take place. Instead, what we pray for is we pray for whatever's ailing us, whatever health issue we have or someone we love has. Uh, we pray for, for traveling mercies, job security, and, and a comfortable life, and uh, all within our, our preferred timeline, of course. Now, again, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we should not bring those things to God because we should. But I'm saying that praying exclusively for our own desires while ignoring the things of God is backwards. If we only pray for what we want, God, I want you to fix this. I want you to fix this. I want you to do this. Amen. Goodbye. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next week. That's silly. And it reminds me of like a spoiled kid right before Christmas. I want this and this and this and this and give me that and give me that. And I want that too and throw that in. There's no please. There's no thank you. There's no anything. It's just, I want all of this and you need to get it for me. We do this. We should pray for boldness as we witness for Christ because that's what he told us to do, right? And so uh, praying for traveling mercies, praying for healing, praying for health, all of those things are great. They're fine. Bringing to the Lord, but don't make that the only thing you bring to the Lord. That's my point there. We should pray for boldness as we witness for Christ, because that's what he told us to do. That should be our top priority. As we come before God, we can, of course, bring the other things too, but, but we should pray, God, God, open my eyes to the loss that I deal with. I'll open my eyes to see the people who don't know you, the ones that I love. God, open my eyes to, 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 open my eyes to, for opportunities to share the gospel. Give me the words to say. Let me, let me represent you in a loving, compassionate, gracious way. Give me boldness and courage so that I can share the gospel with people that might not accept it very well. That's exactly what the church is praying for. It, our situation, our situation doesn't matter as much as our witness does. It doesn't. Our circumstances matter less than our boldness for Christ. Our prayers, um, like, like that of the early church, should flow from our devotion, our obedience, our faith, and our love for Jesus. That's where our prayers should come from. Our prayers should not come from our circumstances or from our wants. Our prayers should come from our love for Jesus. And, and, and it's okay to pray for things that you want or you need, or it's, it's okay to pray for afflictions or, or issues in your life. That's great. That's wonderful. Scripture backs that up. But don't make that the end. It, it should stem from your love for Jesus, your faith. So this prayer came out of a witness for Jesus. And the next one is that in this prayer, the church is unified. Did you notice this as we were reading it? This church is unified. In Acts, uh, verse 24, I re we read out of the English Standard Version. That's the version the church uses. But the New American Standard Bible says, in verse 24, says, And when they had heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. 
NASB, um, their goal in their translation is to translate from the original language, in this case it was ancient Greek, into English as literally as possible. And so almost always they are the closest translation when you're reading the Bible from English to Greek. They're almost always the closest. And so, uh, and in this case, that's true as well. So uh, what it says is, and they lifted their voices to God with one accord. We could say together, but one accord is stronger. It's saying they all were praying this. They all agreed on this. This is unity. This language is, is, is unity. They're together in their prayer. That's the point there. They're not saying, well, maybe this opposition is a sign from God that we need to change direction. Maybe, maybe this opposition is a sign from God that, that really we weren't supposed to stay in Jerusalem, but really we were supposed to leave Jerusalem for a while. They're, they're not saying maybe this opposition is a sign that maybe we need to do something else. Maybe our leadership is not doing what it's supposed to do. That's not what they're saying. They're praying together as one church, unified in their mission to face their fears, to face persecution, to face the Sanhedrin, to face King Herod, to face Rome, and all because Jesus said, make disciples. And, and so they're, they're, they're wanting to face all of this opposition, this opposition that is far greater and more powerful than anyone in the church. And they're saying, God, allow me to do this. Give me boldness as we do it. Because one thing they knew is that they were going to obey the Great Commission. That was non-negotiable, and they were all on board with that. They're all on the same page. They all wanted the same thing, and that's disciples of Jesus. Look, we can get distracted and splinter the body of Christ over silly things. When, when I, um, I, I left active duty Army, and uh, I, I went into seminary. I had no intention of being a pastor in, in a church. I, my plan was to end up back in the military and, and do some other things and, or maybe do some parachurch stuff. But eventually, God, uh, God changed me and God led me and, uh, and, and grew me up, I suppose. And one of the reasons why I wasn't planning on going into church ministry is because I had seen and heard churches split and divide over stupid things, right? Over the color of the carpet. There's a church from back where I grew up that a church literally split over the color of the carpet. They needed a new carpet, and so then the church was going to split over making that decision. Another church did split and, and had huge, huge problems as a result because they were adding on they're making an addition to their building, and one side was saying, well, we need to invest a lot of money and do a great job and high-quality work on this addition. The other side was saying, no, 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 we need to make this as cheap as possible so we can use this money for other things, and they ended up fighting and dividing and splitting. The church closes its doors, and who knows what other issues came of it, right? Those are silly, silly things. Those are silly things to fight over, Right? The carpet, the color of the carpet doesn't matter. It doesn't matter a single bit, especially if that argument or, or that hill you're willing to die on is taking you away from the gospel. If you're so focused on some issue that you're not sharing the gospel with the lost, then something's wrong. Something is wrong. And there are plenty of things that, you know, you could fight over church polity. You can fight over the approach to missions. You can fight over methods of ministry. You can fight over miscommunication or misunderstandings. All of these things 
can divide the bride of Christ, which prevents her from making disciples, from getting out into the city and loving the lost. Or in short, from obeying Jesus. They were unified. The church was unified. Okay? The next one, the prayer was rooted in Scripture. I think I said the prayer is based on Scripture, yeah. The prayer is based on Scripture. And here at the beginning, in verse 25, the end of 25, they quote, right? That's a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2, that's a messianic psalm. That psalm told of Jesus, right? It was a prophecy telling about the Messiah. But here's the point. Prayer and God's Word go hand in hand. They go together. So, there are a couple of things on this, and, and we could go deeper on exactly what this means, but we're looking at the prayer as a whole, okay? And so, a couple of things on this. First of all, are your prayers biblical? And, and I know that, that might sound strange, but are we praying for something that God's Word says He really wants for us? Are we praying for something entirely different? Are, are you asking for God's blessing on something that's sinful? Because people do that. That sounds silly, but people do it. Have, this next thing is, have you ever prayed Scripture? Have you ever prayed a passage? Okay. Have you ever prayed the Psalms? Or, or maybe when, when, you're, when you're asking God for wisdom, have you ever used Proverbs or James? Have you ever opened up the Scriptures and looked at them and paraphrased them and prayed them back to God? Have you ever done that? Because that, that is an incredible way to pray. And by the way, it's a, it's a good template for a prayer. When you're praying for boldness, by the way, I would recommend Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. Go there, read it, paraphrase it, pray it back to God. Do you pray scriptures? Because scriptures are rich, the scriptures are God's word, and you know that when you're in the scriptures and you're praying the scriptures, you're asking God, you're asking God for what he already wants of us. The next thing, and this one is, is really mind-blowing, um, is that they did not ask God to change their circumstances. And this is unbelievable. Again, understand what they're facing. Understand who their opposition is. Understand just the, the mountain that is in front of them. They asked God to empower them to make the best use of their circumstances. That's what they asked God to do. They don't say, God, soften the heart of the Sanhedrin. They don't say, God, choose all Pharisees instead of Sadducees in the next election. They don't, they don't say, God, change the heart of, of Caesar. They, they don't say any of that stuff. They, they, what they're doing is they're asking God to give them power to make the best use as witnesses for Christ in their circumstances. That means these men, Peter and John and the rest of the church here, they're willing to face the same treatment that Jesus received, okay? And so remember, remember Jesus, remember what he went through. Remember how he was beaten until he wasn't recognized as a man. Remember how Isaiah says his beard was ripped from his face. Remember how the Gospels described the situation as a public shaming where people would walk by and mock him and spit on him and hit him. 
Remember how after he was beaten beyond recognition, after the, the, the crown of thorns was, was pushed down on his head, then he was forced to carry a heavy cross up to a hill, and then he was nailed on it until he died. Jesus Christ was tortured to death. And that's what these people are facing. That's what they're willing to endure for the gospel. They're, they're, what they're saying is they're saying, I am willing to face this. I am willing to endure this because Jesus Christ gave me a mission. And I can't do anything but obey him because he is Lord. And I'm willing to walk into whatever these Sanhedrin or the Romans or anybody else will do to me so that I can be obedient to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is absolutely incredible. And they're not saying, soften their hearts. They're not saying, God, God, relieve this from me. They're saying, God, make me bold. Jeez Louise, this is incredible. I mean, if, if this doesn't throw you, I mean, this is absolutely astounding that they're not asking for their circumstances to be changed. I mean, look, I, I love Jesus. I do, but I'm pretty sure if I was in this situation, I, I would be asking for a different circumstance. The church is willing to face exactly what Jesus faced because they're facing the same opposition that Jesus faced. They knew they, they, weren't, they, weren't the, they weren't the atoning sacrifice, but they had a mission from Jesus Christ. And they did not want their circumstances to be a distraction to their witness. And so they asked for boldness. And essentially, they, they know very well that where they're going ends in a terrible death. They know that. They know it's going to happen. They know that the threats given to them are real. They know that the, the Sanhedrin is going to follow through. But they don't want that to be a distraction from what their mission is. And that mission is to make disciples of Jesus, starting in Jerusalem and moving around to the entire world. They're not asking God to soften the heart of Pilate. They're not asking God to work through the Sanhedrin. One commentator said, pray not for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Your circumstance is your circumstance, and it's not always fun. It's not always enjoyable. Pray for boldness. Look, I, we, we can say our circumstances will, will increasingly become more difficult to make disciples. I, I do believe that, by the way. Which is why our prayers for boldness and passion should become more regular. But I doubt, I doubt that any of us in, in our lifetime we'll see the kind of persecution that the early church faced. I doubt that. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy to share the gospel or that it's always going to be accepted no matter where we go. But as it gets more and more difficult, as the Christian faith is rejected more commonly, the church's prayer for boldness and passion should increase. It should. Not the other way around. We shouldn't say change our circumstance. We should say give me boldness, give me courage. So they didn't ask God to change their circumstances, which is mind-blowing. Notice also in their prayer, they address God as sovereign Lord. 
They address God as sovereign Lord. Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They're addressing him as sovereign Lord. Um, sovereign, by the way, essentially means one who holds complete power. Okay, so uh, sovereign Lord, and then they go into and they, they describe how powerful he is. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, made everything. Dear sovereign Lord, and then talk about how powerful he is. And so what they, they're acknowledging God as creator, and what they're doing is they're, uh, they're connecting God here later also to the Holy Spirit, which points to the Trinity. Okay, they're, they're addressing God for who he is. They're addressing God as the one in complete control. They're addressing God as perfect and holy. They're addressing God as a Trinitarian God. Right, right here. They come to God as God, as how he really is. Not who, not who they were taught that God is, not who they want God to be, but for who God is. God is sovereign, God is creator, and God is three in one. But notice also how their reliance on his sovereignty, they don't make an excuse for their own personal responsibility. When, when Christians overemphasize God, God's sovereignty or our personal responsibility, the church loses power. God is completely sovereign, but he, he involves us and has tasked us with certain issues. God has challenged us to make disciples. That's what, he's, that's what he expects of us, okay? So to sit back and think, God will handle all of it without me, without me even lifting a finger, is essentially to ignore all of Scripture, right? God expected something out of every major Bible figure you can think of. Moses, Abraham, Elijah, Elisha, David, Solomon, Jesus, Paul, Peter. Every single biblical character God expected something from. And he expects something from you and from me. Okay? He, he's not going to do everything. He expects something from his church, and that something is to make disciples. They didn't, allow God's, they didn't allow God's sovereignty to be an excuse for their responsibility. They knew that God wanted something from them. They knew that God was going to work through them. They knew that their mission was to make disciples and to preach Jesus Christ. The next thing is that they glorified Jesus. And this is the final thing that you notice out of their prayer. The purpose of the prayer, again, was not to change their circumstances, but the purpose of the prayer was to glorify God and His Son, not to list the needs of the church on that day. So in spite of the fact that the church had some desperate needs, they sought to glorify God and specifically Jesus Christ. So in the face of terrible persecution, they're able to focus on Jesus and the mission that Jesus left for the church. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Again, if I were in, in their position, I would be pretty focused on the persecution headed my way. So I, I'm, I'm glad God relied on them and not me. Let's look at God's response, and, and we'll close with God's response. First thing he does is he shook the place. That's what he does. And so, um, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. 
That's what it says. The place where they were gathered together was shaken. This was an answer for their request for boldness. He was essentially saying, you've got it. Yes. He's answering their prayer with a very clear yes. He's affirming them and showing his presence among them. The next thing we see is that he filled them with the Holy Spirit. The second part of 31. And they were all filled with the Spirit. Okay, so remember, this prayer came, it's after Pentecost, so they, they have the Spirit dwelling in them, but we talked a couple of weeks ago how there's multiple fillings of the Spirit. Only one Pentecost, but multiple fillings of the Spirit, and they're praying this prayer, they're focused on glorifying Jesus before they're filled with the Spirit. I mean, they're incredible. Their faith is, is, again, unimaginable, that they're so focused on God and glorifying Him and not their circumstance. And then God gives them the boldness that they're asking for and then fills them with the Spirit. And then I just talked about this. The final thing is this is not a repeat of Pentecost. There's one Pentecost just like there's one crucifixion, there's one virgin birth, there's one resurrection, there's one ascension, there's one Pentecost. But there are multiple fillings of the Spirit and you can find them throughout the New Testament. Okay, they're kind of a short-term filling of the Spirit. Okay, so what do we get from this passage? What do we get from this passage? First of all, don't focus on your circumstances or or even on on yourself. Focus on Jesus. Glorify Him and obey Him. Glorify Jesus. Seek the Spirit's power in your obedience and in your love of Jesus Christ. Pray in accordance to the Scriptures and, and remain grounded in them as well, but regardless of how difficult your life is or your circumstances may be, do not focus on your circumstances. Focus on Jesus. We can worship in the most difficult of times. Jesus is the answer. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer to our, to our problems, the root of all problems, and that's sin. Now, Jesus did not save us from our sins without a heavy cost. We talked a little bit about what he endured, but um, in 1 Corinthians, and, and elders, you can move forward. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I didn't mark it, so it's going to take me a second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus Christ paid the debt for our sins. He, he took the burden of our sins. He was the only sacrifice that was acceptable, and so he gladly took it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is uh, it's a celebration because uh, we're celebrating what Jesus Christ went through to save us. But it's also a time for us to come before the Lord and, and deal with the sins in our life. It's a time for us to pray to God and, and seek forgiveness for, for what we've involved ourselves in. Jesus saved us from our sins, but it was not free. 
And so when we, when we look and when we're talking about our prayer, how they should focus on Jesus and glorify Jesus and how we should seek to make disciples of Jesus, it's all because that he died for our sins, but the grave could not hold him. The scripture says it was impossible. As we seek boldness for Christ, that's the key. Christ is the key. Boldness for Christ. Not just boldness, not just a loud mouth, but boldness for the gospel of sharing who he is and what he has done for us. The scripture says in the last chapter of, or in, in Acts chapter 4, it says there is no other name by which men may be saved. And so we celebrate that today and, and we're doing uh, the Lord's Supper a little bit differently again, just like we did it last week, but we have the loaf here. And so we're going to have everyone move forward and the elders will be holding uh, a loaf or a, a tray of juice, and you can pull the bread off of the loaf, and that is repre representing the, the destruction of Jesus' body. And as you take a drink of the juice, that's representing Christ's spilled blood for your sins. Feel free to take them right away. You don't have to go to your seat. We're not going to take it all together, but we have the bread here, the juice here, and then there's a couple of trash cans where you can get rid of your cup. But we are here to declare Jesus Christ as the one who saved us from our sins. All that we do should be focused on that. All that we do should be focused on making disciples and declaring his message, not our circumstances, not our opinion, but his message.